Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Colossians 1, verse 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossia, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope you laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. It's good to see you today. We are starting today a new series on the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn your Bible to the book of Colossians. We're going to be there for the next several weeks. Um, In the meantime, between each sermon, I would encourage you to be reading the book of Colossians as frequently as possible, because I think you're going to be able to extract uh, some wonderful things from it, and hopefully we'll get started with that today. You know, when you're in church leadership, you dream about the local church a lot. You sometimes dream about big things, you know, you try to keep your mind on those things like making disciples near and far and thinking about people coming to Christ and learning that he is Lord of their lives and and that hopefully captures your mind a lot but sometimes you dream about the little things like how are our services running or is the podcast uploaded this week you begin to think about all kinds of things and a lot of things in between those so last fall our elders presented to you some initiatives that we are going to take it take some time to invest into throughout this year and maybe into some part of next year. There's some initiatives that we need to take to um, really try to invest in the long-term health. You know, some things like we made a move on our mortgage, which is almost done. You all showed up in a huge way when we asked you to do that, and it was unbelievable demonstration of your faith and your encouragement uh, to work for the Lord in that way. Uh, We're going to be changing eventually at some point when things get worked out. Um, some of the seating arrangement in here so that we could fill this space more effectively. When we go from pews to chairs, we'll be able to put more people in here more comfortably, and our goal is to be able to do that. We're looking at maybe hiring a youth minister eventually. We'd love uh, to be able to do that soon because we love our children and want to raise them up as best we can. And each of those things, as I've mentioned, and the other things that we dream about are important. So long as you keep serving the main thing. You follow with what I'm saying? A mortgage matters so long as it frees up our money so that we can make disciples. Seating arrangements and the chairs that you sit in matter so long as it's about bringing people to Christ. 
Hiring another staff member is all good and well so long as it serves the purpose of bringing glory and honor to Jesus. And that is why we're going to study the book of Colossians. Exactly why. That's what this book is really all about. We can do a lot of good things. We can do a lot of great things. A lot of things that we're encouraged by and call it church. But if we lose sight of the excellency of Jesus Christ in all things, we might just not be a church anymore. Because Jesus is at the center of what we are supposed to be doing. So we come to Colossians for this very reason, because this book is a non-stop poke in the chest to people who call themselves believers, saying that Jesus Christ, as chapter 3 is going to tell us, is all in all. He is to be exalted above all things in our life. He is to be submitted to in everything. Jesus Christ is not just one that we should worship and serve. He is one that we should recognize as our creator. He is to be exalted higher than anything else in the world. All things come from him. And we're going to learn that all things are actually for him. That's why St. Augustine said it this way. Um, He said, Christ is not valued at all if he is not valued above all that if we don't love and adore Jesus Christ above all things then we really have not come to understand who he really is and so the title of the series that we're going to be doing in Colossians is above all and so one of the things I love about our text this morning that Alan read for us if you were reading in the introduction is you get to verse 3 and he says something really special he says we thank God the father of our Lord Jesus Christ and we pray for you Now, Paul has never been to this body of believers. Most people uh, think that there was probably some preaching he was doing in Ephesus, and there was a guy named Epaphras that probably heard and maybe was converted by Paul, and then went back to the city of Colossae and probably converted some people and started the church, and Paul had heard about them, and he had been told about them, and he was thanking God for them. And what I love about this right here in verse 3 is Paul gives us As a body of believers, in that one little sentence, something to dream about. That is a beautiful thought. This sentence for me gave me a whole new picture. I imagine when I was reading verse 3, arriving after this life is over, whether the Lord returns or my life has ended on this planet, I imagined arriving at the throne of God, entering into the realm of what he calls heaven, which is in his presence, I imagine meeting him, talking with him. The presence of God is there. There's fullness of joy and there's peace. Finally seeing with the eyes of God, looking back on my life and all the things that God has done to get me to that point and feeling this overwhelming sense of gratitude that he has got me home and he has got us home with him. And as I started picturing this, I imagined bumping into people like Peter or John, bumping into Mary and Martha, bumping into Jesus himself. And imagine bumping into like Jesus and him already knowing our names like, oh, hey, there you are. Yeah, I thought you was going to see you here eventually, and there it's good to see you. And I imagine bumping into Jesus, him knowing our name or my name already or your name already, and then him asking this question, hey, weren't you part of the church that met in Pickerington, Anthony? And I could just imagine myself sort of you know, stammering a little bit, like, uh, yeah, you know my name, and yeah, I was part of that body of believers that met in Pickerington for a little while there while I lived there. 
And I can imagine Jesus saying this. Boy, I was so thankful for you guys. Can you picture that? In heaven, Jesus saying, I was so thankful for the church that you were a part of and the role that you played in that body. That gave me just a new perspective on what I hope for, what I dream for us as we work here. To be a body of believers that Paul or Peter, Mary, Martha, Jesus would say, I am thankful for their place in the world today. And so this morning, as we look at this text, I want to ask sort of three questions that are going to work us through getting down to the root cause of really what it means to be a church that Jesus would be thankful for. Like like Jesus looks at us as Christians that he's thankful for and a church that he's thankful for. And I began to think, okay, what is it going to take for us to do that? So let's work on that together. The first question is, what caused Paul's gratitude? What made him thankful for this church? For all that we know, he hasn't really received a gift back from them like he did from the church at Philippi. He hasn't met them yet. He doesn't know them yet. But something about them has made him thankful for who they are. And here's what it is. The first thing is this. He says he is thankful for their faith in Christ. Now there's a subtle difference here. There's a subtle word you've got to pick up on. The way that he said it, which is intended to tell you something. He doesn't say like he does in 1 Thessalonians, I have heard of your labor of love, your endurance, your patience and those things. He doesn't say it that way. He says, I am thankful that you have faith in Jesus Christ. This is different than saying, I'm thankful that you have faith for Jesus. When we say the word faith, that word oftentimes gets generalized. It sometimes loses its poignancy or what it's really trying to get after. And there are times when you could say, I'm thankful for your faith for Jesus, which would mean like your moral behavior, your integrity, your commitment to good works, your labor of love, as Paul would say to the Thessalonians. And there are times that you could say that, but here, Paul is actually driving down to something much deeper. He's talking about, and he's thankful for, their deep trust in Jesus, not just for Jesus. Now that's vital. Faith for Jesus, living for Jesus, obeying Jesus is essential for a healthy Christian life. But he's really talking about who these people trust at their core. So that's where gratitude, being a Christian or a church that God is thankful for, that's where it starts is do we trust in Jesus? You see, I think when these people were stressed, they remembered that Jesus was on the throne. They trusted in him. When they were lonely, they remembered Jesus was with them. They trusted in him. When they were afraid, they didn't forget, but they remembered that Jesus fights for us, that he's walking before me and behind me, and he's with me, and they trusted in him. When they were feeling condemned or guilty or ashamed, they trusted in Jesus as their righteousness and found relief from those condemnation. They were moral absolutely because they trusted in Jesus. They had faith in him. So the first reason they were thankful was that they had faith in Jesus. The second reason was that they had a love for all the saints. They loved all the saints. You know, love for our fellow believers is the very thing that Jesus said will distinguish a disciple from a non-disciple. 
There are a lot of things that we do to try to, you know, be the light of the world like Jesus was or try to, you know, live out our faith in the real world. But Jesus said this, all will know that you are my disciple by the love that you have for each other. Love is something that he has commanded us to do. And love gets so distorted sometimes. Love is not just warm feelings. Love is not just saying what people want to hear. It's not just doing what people want us to do. Love is actually the courage it takes to do what is best for someone with gentleness because you know sometimes it can be difficult to receive. Love is always considering what is the very best thing for this purpose, so, person. So for instance, love is maybe offering an alternative way of seeing a situation after somebody expresses to you what's going on in their life. Love isn't always just affirming everything. Maybe it's offering a different way to view something. Love can be being present when somebody's suffering, even if you don't have words or ways to fix it. You just show up and you're there and you're with them. Love is telling someone when they have a booger. Did you know that? (laughs) Even though it's uncomfortable. But do it discreetly. Love is defending someone against gossip. Hey, don't talk about that person that way. Don't speak about him or her in that manner. Love is defending somebody against injustice. Hey, that person does not deserve that. You need to step back. Love is... Taking, p- taking care of someone who's being taken advantage of, even if it costs you reputation, time, and money. That's love. Love is making the call that you think about making but never do. Love is sending the text message or the card that you want to send to somebody when you're thinking about it, but you don't get around to doing it. Love is returning to say thank you to somebody or I'm sorry for what I've done. That's what love is. Now, oftentimes we avoid these things with each other because why? They make us feel awkward, don't they? Whether it's sending the text message or making the call or sitting without ways to fix it or even telling somebody you got something in your nose, that makes us feel awkward, doesn't it? But in those moments, when we feel awkward, who really feels awkward? We do. And so in those moments when we don't live out these things, we're actually loving ourselves, not loving somebody else. Let me ask you this question. Reverse those things that I just, those examples I just gave you. How many of you don't want somebody sitting with you in your suffering? How many of you don't want somebody standing up for you if you're being gossiped about? How many of you don't want to know when you have something in your nose? How many of you don't want to receive a call that says, hey, I love you and I appreciate you? Or how many of you don't want to get a text message that says, I really am thankful for what you did for me last week? How many of you don't want those things? We love that, right? It builds up relationship. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So we need to be people who have faith in Jesus. We trust him in the most difficult moments and have a love for all the saints. Faith in Jesus, love for saints. It's simple, right? It's a meaningful life. It's a significant life. But if we're honest, it's really hard to live that way, isn't it? Isn't it hard that when you're under duress and difficulty to have faith in Jesus? Isn't it hard to always love all the saints, even the most difficult ones? It's challenging to live that way. So we've got to ask the second question, what really is the root cause of faith and love? 
How are we going to be people that bring about faith and love in us? How's this going to happen? Well, look what um, Paul says there. He tells us in verse 4, we'll get to in just a moment. You see, faith and love are things that are born, not forced. And one of the big mistakes that we make and the things we got to be careful about is that you can't actually just force faith to happen. And you can't actually just force love to take place or to come alive in you. There's something that are born. And this is the mistake we make sometimes. We try to force faith by just facts. Now, facts are, play a key role in the development of your faith. In fact, Christianity is based upon, it's built upon the historical reality of Jesus Christ. It's based upon facts. And you and I need to look at the facts. Jesus himself invites us to bring all your questions, to examine the evidence. He doesn't want your commitment before you've counted the cost, which means you've looked into it. Facts are essential to becoming a Christian. You've got to look at the truth and understand it. Christianity is not less than facts, but it is more than facts. Eventually, you actually have to move from facts to faith. Faith is trust. It's belief. It's commitment. Faith lead, fa- pardon me, facts lead you to faith, but facts do not replace faith. We try to force faith by facts, and sometimes we try to for lo- force love by just law. Now, the Bible commands us to love. There's no doubt about it. We have been told, Jesus said, love as I have loved you. We are told to do this. The law can tell us to love. The law can actually even tell us how to love, to be kind, to be gentle, to tell the truth. The law can do that. And we need to follow the law when it tells us to do those things. But love does not give birth. uh, The law does not give birth to love. In fact, Paul would even warn us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, if you have the tongues of men and of angels, but you don't have love, you're a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. If you give your body to be burned, you give all your goods away to the poor, but you don't have love, it's a waste. It's not useful. Are you following with me? The law tells you to love and how to love, but it doesn't grow real love in us. So how are we going to develop true love and true faith in Jesus? Look in verse 5. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ, in verse 4, and the love that you have for all the saints, now look in verse 5, because here's why the Colossians had faith in Jesus. They trusted him with everything. And they had an unshakable love for all of the saints. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Did you catch that? Faith in Christ And love for all the saints is caused actually by hope you have in what's to come. That's strange, isn't it? It doesn't seem like that would actually fit together, but that's what he's saying here. He's saying faith and love are born from hope. When you know what has been bought for you because of Jesus, when you know what has been reserved for you, when you know what is waiting for you, when this life of difficulty and trial and torment and suffering is over, and when you know what's being held for you because of the great grace of Jesus Christ, it changes you. But here's what I find. A lot of people don't know really what's promised to them. Here's, do you know what's promised to Christians? 
Sure, we say the word heaven, right? Like, I can't wait for heaven, and heaven will come someday. But do you know what the essence of heaven is? Do you know what really is behind the promise of what heaven is actually there for? Three really simple things. One, heaven is promised to have this. It is promised to be a world, an existence, an environment, without any sin or suffering whatsoever. It will be a place that has no suffering, a place that has no disease, a place that has no hurt, a place where there is no injustice, a place where people treat each other wonderfully and no one is ever treated wrong. It is a world to live in of perfection. It is the utopia that every political person promises you but cannot deliver. That's what heaven is, a world without sin. The second thing is this. Heaven promises a body that won't die. Did you know that? In the resurrection, he promises a body that won't die. He calls it a spiritual body, an eternal body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that this body that we resurrect with will be imperishable. It will not decay. It will not fade away. It will not grow old. It will not die. It will be glorious. It will be powerful. You want to have an idea of what it will be like? There's a lot of things that we don't know about it, but what we do know is we can look to the life of Jesus Christ when he raised from the dead. Remember what his body went through before he died? The scourging, the beating, the carrying of the cross. He couldn't even make the, all the way up the hill. His body was so beaten down. Seven out of the ten people that were beaten the way that Jesus was beaten were paralyzed for the rest of their life if they didn't die. That's how bad he was abused. Three days later, the guy had vibrancy, strength, the ability to walk seven miles down the Emmaus Road in Luke chapter 24. That man's body was not just resurrected back to life. It was restored to health. You're suffering right now. Your body is aching. You're having difficulty. You're decaying in this world. The promise of heaven is you will be given a body that no longer goes through that. It will be eternal. So you got a world without sin, you got a body that won't die, but the third one is the greatest. I love this one. He promises a life of perfection. Imagine for just a moment not having one thing that you need to change about you anymore. Imagine not having one thing that you're embarrassed of anymore. Not one thing that is able to be critiqued. Not one flaw anymore. Constantly you're in the right state of mind Constantly you're able to make all the right decisions. Constantly you have the right words for the right moment and you're always making the right actions. Effortless. Can you imagine a world where your body doesn't ache anymore, it's not decaying, it's not perishing, and a world that is perfect where everybody treats each other right and it's instant for you, it's natural for you to live perfectly. That's what Jesus has purchased through his death, burial, and resurrection for us, and it's reserved in heaven waiting for us. So when you get that, when you understand that hope, when it lands for you, it makes you a person who says, I'm going to trust this Jesus because he is offering me something better than anybody else has ever even offered me before. And I'm going to love people because I don't want anybody to miss out on getting there. Do you see how hope gives birth to faith and love? So if you're struggling with faith and you're struggling with love, you've got to get to hope. But here is the last question I'll recognize. How do we get hope, right? What's the root cause of this? How do we get down to the very base of this? What causes us to have hope? Well, 
Good news for you, it's not a fairy tale. It's not a blind leap. I don't have Kool-Aid this morning for you to drink. And I'm not going to ask you to just to suspend belief so that you can believe into this. There's a reality there. Look at the end of verse 5. He's going to tell you what gives birth to hope. Verse 5 says it this way. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this, this hope, verse 5, of this you have heard before and the word of truth, the gospel. Are you getting down to the root cause? It is the gospel that gives birth to hope. It is hope that gives birth to faith and love. So if you want to be, and I want to be, a kind of people, a church that Jesus is thankful for, a Christian that Jesus is thankful for, we've got to actually get all the way down to the root cause of how we get to being people who have faith and love. That comes from hope, which comes from the gospel. The gospel is what gives birth to hope. And here's what you've got to know about the gospel. The gospel, first of all, is historical. This is what I was talking about with the facts. This is what's great about it. Remember, notice he says there in verse 5, the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is historical. That there, Listen, a guy named Jesus really lived, whether you are a believer or not, nobody debates the fact that there was a guy named Jesus who lived in Nazareth about 2,000 years ago. Nobody denies that. There was a guy named Jesus who did that, and he lived a perfect life. He died the death of a Roman cross. Historians agree upon that. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Nobody disagrees upon that. The one point of disagreement that people have to deal with is, where's his body right now? That Jesus who lived from Nazareth, who died on a Roman cross, that was buried in a rich man's tomb, is he alive or is he dead today? That's the real question. And there's overwhelming evidence over and over that Jesus of Nazareth is no longer dead, but raised back to life. There's all kinds of evidence. If you don't know that evidence, I'd love to share it with you sometimes. But Jesus raised back from the dead. It is historical, and you've got to sink your teeth into who is Jesus. The Bible tells us that this message of the gospel, this plan of the gospel, this Jesus who would come and be our sacrifice, was according to the will of God, before the foundation of the world. Here's something you need to know about that. Meaning you and I were in the heart and the mind of God before we existed. And that because it was the will of God, it was his choice to do this. We didn't twist his arm. We didn't beg him long enough. We didn't grind him down so he'd finally give in. He said, I want to do this. That shows you how much he loves you. It was an act of saving sacrifice. Jesus Christ legally legally endured the just punishment that we deserve for our sins. So when we look to the heavens now and say, we know we have sin, we can be sure that we're forgiven because Jesus endured the legal justice that we deserved. But relationally, he paved the way for us to return back to God. He created what's called reconciliation, that God no longer has anything against us, that God no longer looks to us and says, I'm frustrated by this. That in Jesus Christ we can actually have forgiveness. According to the will of God, an act of saving grace, and it transformed the future. When Jesus Christ raised from the dead, he destroyed the one thing that holds captive people to this life. Do you know what that is? It's death. Death is the one thing that makes people prisoners of this world. If you believe that death has not been defeated and that death is the final stance, 
that death is when your life is finally forever over, all you have in this world is this short breath here in this life. But the resurrection of Jesus shows that he defeated death. Death no longer has any power over a Christian, over a believer in Jesus Christ. Death doesn't have power over us. It doesn't hold us captive anymore. And when you see that, it begins to change your life. So the gospel is historical, but look in verse 6. He says, The word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel first is historical. You've got to think about it. You've got to study it. You've got to understand all of the implications that come behind this guy Jesus coming to earth and dying on a cross and resurrecting back to life. You've got to understand what's behind that, but then you've got to make it personal. That he did that for you. That he did that for us. And that what he wanted was the result of the gospel, which is reconciliation with those that he has made. So the gospel then becomes hopeful. The gospel produces, when you believe it, and it lands personally for you, an unshakable, certain hope. The things that I've shared with you today about a perfect world and a resurrected body and a perfect state of our existence, that hope that Jesus has created for us, that he has made for us through the resurrection, that is unshakable. So whether you are suffering or not suffering, whether things are going well for you or not, whether you're experiencing stress and difficulty or things are great, regardless of what's going on in your life, that hope of Jesus Christ is confident and unshakable and certain for you. And hope in Jesus produces a faith in him and a love for all the saints. That's when Christianity comes alive. When you are excited about trusting Jesus and excited about loving his people. No longer is it drudgery or misery trying to just force your way into the next world, but you actually enjoy what he has given to us. That's when we become a church that he's thankful for. So you have to ask yourself today as you think about this passage Think about what's really being offered to you. Getting down to the brass tacks of what really Christianity is. Do you want to live a life with real hope, real faith in something that can't be shaken, and love that transcends all challenges? Are you tired of living with fear and frustration? Are you tired of being tossed around in this world with anger and bitterness, despair, uncertainty? Are you tired of feeling contempt for other people and envy and jealousy and all kinds of frustrations? The gospel offers you the escape out of the fray of this world to take your steps towards Jesus and find your freedom. Every person in this room has a step to take towards Jesus or with Jesus. You just got to ask, what's my step today? How do I get closer to him? This is not a blind leap. This is getting serious about the gospel and understanding it until it gets personal, until it changes your life. Let's stand together and sing the song. If you have a need, you can come now.